This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Genevieve Graham is my guest today. Genevieve is the number one best-selling author of The Forgotten Home Child, Letters Across the Sea, Tides of Honor, Promises to Keep, Come From Away, At the Mountain's Edge, and her latest historical fiction novel, Bluebird, which was published on April the 5th of this year. Bluebird is a fascinating look into the lives of Canadian World War I veterans and the post-war Prohibition era. Genevieve is both passionate and brave about breathing life back into Canadian history through tales of love and adventure. Please welcome the fabulously talented and extremely gifted author, Genevieve Graham. I cannot tell you how excited I am to introduce you to Genevieve Graham. I got to tell you this. I got the advanced reader's edition of Bluebird, and I was on a flight to Winnipeg for work, and they announced that the plane was going to have to be de-iced a couple of times, and I was celebrating because it gave me more time to read the book. So Genevieve, welcome to Breaking Brave. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Marilyn. So I didn't know until I read Bluebird that historical fiction was a thing. I didn't know. I'm a huge reader, but I didn't know. Can you talk to me a little bit about historical fiction and what got you into it? I love historical fiction. To me, um, it's it's a journey to a whole different world. So the idea about historical fiction, and I think the responsibility of historical fiction authors, is to bring you into the history that actually happened and then fictionalize it with the characters and what the characters are doing throughout the book. So the idea is that you are learning history while you read it, but you uh, you don't really notice it until the end. And if you can connect enough to the characters, which is always the goal, then you're never going to forget that that history. It's just a it's just a really neat vehicle. I think a lot of people are, are a little intimidated by it because they think history, oh, yawn. But um, I, I fell in love with, well, my first love with historical fiction was Outlander by Diana Gabaldon, the book, not the TV series. And um, from there, I just kept reading and reading and reading. And I just was learning so much and I didn't even realize it. I was enjoying the story, but then somebody would say something about trivia and I would have an answer. And I didn't even know, you know, I had read it. So 
Um, I think it's a, I think it's an amazing genre. It's entertaining, but it's educational without even <laughs> without you knowing. <laughs> and and that I am the biggest fan after only reading Bluebird, and I, I'm going to go back and read all your other books. Thank you. But you talk about, and it's so related to me. History is black and white. And history's in the past. And in high school, which is where I was exposed to history, basically, I hated it. I had to memorize dates and I had to memorize wars of, and I had, and I hated it. It was dry. It was, who cares? There was nothing interesting about it because there weren't any characters involved. Yeah. And they don't, I don't know, they don't focus on a lot of the more interesting stories. I have to tell you, I slept through history class. I just, you know, I, I'd memorize the same things as you. I I remember the War of 1812. I remember the Plains of Abraham. And hey, who doesn't remember the fur trade in Canadian history? But um, that's pretty much all I remember. And once I passed the exams, that was it. It was gone. And uh, I since then, I have discovered so much history that's it's just fascinating. And it took me you know, over four decades to really dig into it and realize, oh, this is what I've been missing. Canada is not the boring place that that we've been raised to think that it is. And there's a lot of, lot of beautiful history. I, I am particularly fascinated by Bluebird because of exactly that. First of all, it's Canadian, which is fabulous. Second of all, there were so many things in that story that I didn't know. And we'll get to that in a little while about talking about the story itself. But I went to school with kids who were descendants of rum runners. So rum runners is basically the storyline that runs through the whole book. And I didn't really ever understand really what that was. And now all of a sudden I'm like, I understand that Sarah Gooderham of Gooderham and Warts, her family came from a whole lineage of run runners. It's so fascinating. When my family and I moved out here to Nova Scotia, um, that was sort of the, the theme that the people out here, a lot of the people out here were saying, you should write about rum running and bootlegging because around Nova Scotia, that was a, that was a big deal. There was a lot of them, but um, I wanted to write about a different area. And then when I started researching Windsor, Ontario and discovering that it was the largest port for bootlegging across Canada, I thought, well, I have to write about that one. So, yeah, it's um, it was an exciting age. It was a thrilling age. It's, they say this is the time when thugs became gangsters and people, uh, you know, they they would do anything for a drink. And it all, almost was not so much that they needed a drink, but that they needed to fight back. They needed to keep what was theirs and uh, be able to have a drink if they darn well wanted. And the, the whole idea of how people grew to adjust to prohibition and how they got around it. And it's it's a fascinating way to look at life. And um, every one of my books is sort of a different theme, a different time in history. But this one is, uh, it zooms in on a really neat, I thought it was a really neat era, fun era with you moving into the flappers. And I happened to have been watching Peaky Blinders at the time. And so I was in the mood for the gangsters and all of the, the toughness. And um, uh, it was, this was a lot of fun to write. It really was. I feel like you've got to do this as beautifully as you do, Genevieve. 
you've got the perfect right brain, left brain combination. Right brain is the creative side and left brain is the analytical side. So the analytical side is all the right history and all the true facts, but the right brain puts the color into the black and white history. So I could see why that would be fun. It really is. It's a puzzle, really. I mean, I think writing any kind of a book is a puzzle because you have so many thoughts and you have to figure it in, you know, how you're going to put the pieces together and bring it all to life. But I love the idea of writing something, not just fiction, but something that really has a basis to it. And since I don't know any of the history, the whole point is to teach myself. And so the way I see it when I'm writing is almost like a movie. And um, the characters come out of all the research. So I, the research is the first thing that I do. I don't know what the story is going to be. I just start to study the research of it. And uh, once I start to understand the details and the tiniest bits and pieces of these people, then I start to see the characters come alive and they start to walk and talk. And, uh, you know, I'll be walking along the street with them and one of them will look at a store window and say, well, what's that? I need that. And I would have to research what it was that she was indicating and then find out what was available in that year. And it's a lot of digging. It's um, it's not easy, but it is surprisingly fun. Um, and you can disappear easily down the rabbit holes and find I've very often gotten on all different tracks that don't belong in the book at all. But I'm so fascinated by the history that I write it anyway. And then then I usually have to take it out. But it's at least been fun learning about it. Um, I think I am, number one, entertaining myself and teaching myself when I write it. And I think because I'm not a, a trained writer, I write it just it's not simple, but I'm. it's a very straightforward way that I write. And it's because that's how I see it. And I think, um, I don't know, I, I love doing it for me, but it's even better knowing that other people are enjoying the stories. Well, I read this book, Bluebird. I read your most recent book, Bluebird, maybe three weeks ago now, two weeks ago. Cover to cover, couldn't put it down. And And the visuals that my brain created when I saw the characters and saw the scenes that you were painting will be with me forever. Even as we're talking about it now, I'm seeing the areas of Windsor that you were describing. I'm seeing the old house. I think it's all about your incredible talent to storytell in history. Because if I'd read the history of bootlegging or rum running, there's just absolutely no way I'd have this kind of visual crispness of what actually was going on. Do you think they could start to do this in school? Could it be more oh. interesting for kids? Oh, I would love to see that. And uh, my books are sort of grade eight and up, I would say. And uh, I think they'd be perfect for history class. Maybe fewer people would sleep through it if they if they read these stories. But I'm glad to hear what you said about the, the characters staying with you and uh, um, I feel like I'm doing my job, then I have a really terrible idea of what I do. And that is, if you see a car crash, you're going to remember it for a few days. But if you know someone, if you're connected to someone in that car crash, you're never going to forget it. And so my idea is, well, I'm basically writing car crashes all over the place. But if you connect to those characters, then you're not going to forget it. And there's way too much history in, of Canada that should not be forgotten. A lot of my other books dive into some of the things in history that 
that people always say to me, how come I never knew this? Why wasn't I taught this? And I've never heard of this before. And and when you read about them, they're very important parts of who we are now. And I love being able to, to dig those up and present them that way. Absolutely. Somehow in school, you and I are ish the same age. You're younger than me. Um, <laughs> the United States was always the focus. Now, not to take anything away from the United States history or the United States of America, but we were always sort of the, in, in my evaluation of it, the poorest sister in the history class where we'd focus on the U.S. and then there'd be something about Canada, but that really wasn't so interesting. So we didn't really focus on it too much. But damn, when we get into this book, fascinating. Yeah, there's, I never understood that about Canadian history. You know, why, why aren't we talking about it? Um, and the thing is, when I first started writing and reading historical fiction, everything I read was basically in Europe or in Scotland or in America, but not here. I mean, there are some amazing novels written about Canadian history, but I, not really written so as accessibly. And I, uh, I just love being able to do that. Like we have important stories and we, um, if you read one of them at the mountain's edge, that's about the Klondike gold rush, the greatest adventure. And it was here, but we don't talk about that at all. So that, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of stories that are coming to light and I would love to see them in schools. I've been telling people, you know, around Christmas time, when you need to go out and buy your child or your grandchild's teacher, a gift, think about instead of yet another mug or candle, give them a copy of the book. They can read it over the holidays and then they can decide if that's what they want to go ahead and teach. Because once children understand these stories, it's, I think it'd be more fun for the teacher and everybody would go away learning a lot more about it. I love that idea because I could see myself as a kid in a class going, okay, I wonder what happens next and what's going to come next and what's going to come next. And as you say, the learning's going in subconsciously, but it, it, it's sticking with you because of the characters and the colorfulness of what's going on. I'm going to go back, Genevieve, because no, your life didn't start out as I'm going to be a writer. Let's talk about the U of T experience I'm going to go back to. Graduated from U of T in music, Bachelor of Arts in music. Let's go there. It was a Bachelor of Music and Performance playing the oboe. Um, I had always loved classical music. I grew up with classical music. I was surrounded by it. Um, and at one point, my father had played the oboe, and I thought, well, I'm going to be better than he ever was. And I just picked it up, and uh, that became my my true calling. And I, I just loved everything about music. And so I went to U of T and got my degree there. And it was such an adventure because I would play with different orchestras and I could feel the creativity um, experiencing it. It was so one thing I really wished my daughters had gone into music because they just to experience that once to be in the middle of so much magic. But somewhere around a few years after I graduated, I'd been freelancing around Toronto and, and the uh, surrounding areas playing with Kitchener, Waterloo and Hamilton and all different areas like that. And somewhere along the line, I looked at my income sheet and realized this is not going to sustain me. And at the same time, a lot of orchestras were losing funding. And I thought, you know, as much as I love it, I can still, you know, listen all the time. I can do other things. And so I moved off and I went into advertising of all things. I wanted a, you know, just a regular office career and, and see how that went. 
And that just kept going and going. I got into advertising, promotions, fundraising. Somewhere along the line, 1992, I met my husband-to-be um, in a chairlift lineup. And uh, we lived in Calgary for about 18 years after that. And I was no longer playing the oboe, but I was teaching piano to dozens of neighborhood kids. And uh, it just kept my music going. But I, I lost touch with my with my UT roots that way. It was still... I think it connects, I think it definitely connects to what I'm doing now with the creativity and being able to, when I'm in the middle of a scene that is really working for me, it can almost feel like I am back in that orchestra, that I can feel the energy around me. Uh, it was, it's it's similar. It's not the same, but it's similar. And there is the creative right brain, left brain, the right brain, the creative piece that that obviously you had has a super passion in you coming from your dad, but it's it now it's not music, but it's 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 writing. It's that's feeding your creative soul. Do I understand correctly, Genevieve, that there was an autoimmune disease in the middle of all of this, which also yes. affected your ability to to focus on a musical career? Yes. Um I have something called Sjogren's syndrome. It's S-J-O with the umlau. G-R-E-N-S syndrome. My uh, my family, my father had an autoimmune disease and his father had lupus, so it's kind of carried down. And I like to say mine is nowhere near as serious as theirs, but it it's definitely a thing. Um, Sjogren's means that I do not produce saliva naturally or tears. Um, all of that gets kind of messed up. It also leads to rheumatoid arthritis, or it can once you have one autoimmune disease, you are open to about 80 others. And so over the years, I've I've come and gone with about five or six of them. Um, but Sjogren's is sticking with me. And if you cannot produce saliva, playing the oboe is somewhat impossible. So, you know, if I'd taken up the cello, it might have been a different story. But um, yeah, it did it did have an impact, but it didn't didn't really bring me down. I've always had this attitude that if something like that, something bad is going to happen, it's for a reason and something better is coming and it's never really, I've never been one to kind of, I don't know, let it get to me too much. It's okay. Well, I can't do that. Let's try something else. Awesome. So Mother's Day of 2007 was a turning point in your life. Why? Well, it was a few months before that, that I had read every historical fiction book that the library could pretty much suggest to me. And I told my husband, uh, you know what? I think I could do this. I'm going to go try and write something. I'd never done more than a thank you note in my life, but I thought, oh, let's just give this a shot. And I remember him saying, sure, see you in a few hours. Have a good time. And uh, I went down to the basement, our our dial-up internet and our one and only desktop, and it was freezing cold down there. And I I didn't know what I was doing. I just sat at that computer and thought, um, well, I did hear that you're supposed to let the story come to you and that the characters speak to you. And that sounds absolutely nuts, but let's see how that goes. And that's exactly what happened to me. The, the character started to speak to me and the story started to come. And, uh, and then it was Mother's Day shortly after that, that my husband gave me my first laptop computer and uh, congratulations. I believe in you. Let's, let's go ahead with this and see, see where you end up. Oh, it's just so wonderful. Um, you also joined some online writing communities. And can we talk about that? Because I personally cannot imagine sitting down 
and having characters and stories come to me, even if I've done research. So did you, did you go to quote unquote school? What, what happened in these online writing communities? I never, ever took a course. I have never paid for a lesson in writing in my life. What I did was, um, I wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, I didn't really know if anybody would ever read it again, but it felt like it needed to be written and I would just keep going on it. Um, and then after I was done, I thought, well, now, now I need to know what I'm supposed to do. And I went online and I, and I read that I'm supposed to um, get myself a literary agent. But first, I should let somebody else take a look at it. And I'd given it to all my neighbors, you know, and they very kindly said, oh, this is great. Um, but, it, you know, what did they, they had to say that. I was next door. So um, I went online and joined two different groups that changed everything about how I wrote and um, brought me into the light, I suppose. And I, I suggested to everyone, the first one was called scribblefile.com and it's still available and it's free. I mean, you can always pay for upgrades, but Scribblefile is a huge uh, membership and everybody submits a chapter here and there. And then the other people there can critique it, make suggestions or compliments or whatever. And as you do that, you get what they call karma. And if you have enough karma points, then somebody will come and critique yours. So it's everybody helping each other out and learning and learning. And I, I met a lot of people there. I, and I felt for the first time, like I'd actually found where I belonged with these other writers. Oh, I get it now. This is why I feel this way because they did as well. Um, and then I joined another one, which is no longer around. It was called Autonomy, and it was run by HarperCollins out of uh, out of England. And there were about nine thousand authors on there. And every week they would have, um, or every day, people would vote vote the books up that they liked, or the or the ones they didn't like would be voted down. At the top, I think it was the top five um, were able to present their manuscripts to HarperCollins. So that was what was driving all of us. Uh, I never made it to the top because I got to number 65. And by that point, I had, uh, I'd already gotten myself an agent. And um, it just, and, and all of that came from not things that I'd paid for. And I certainly never went to school for it. But the support that I got from the writing community and people saying, you know, I really like the way you approach this. But if you did it this way, you know, why don't you play with it? And I think for me, the, the biggest lesson for all of this was to accept criticism because these books become our babies. They're always likened as babies. And that's uh, why I can never answer which one's your favorite um, because every one of them is. And you don't want anyone to say something bad about your baby. But if you can step back and listen to that criticism and think, oh, well, that can change that can change everything about how I approach this. And if you can be open to that, there's always room to grow. So th those, I think those really, really helped me along the way. Thank you. And Genevieve, you also were doing a freelance editing business while you were getting into writing. Is that, is that correct? So you, uh, you mentioned that maybe that helped you to see it critically, see things in a different light. Yes, that was uh, four years of hard work. Being an editor is not always a fun job. Um, it, I met a lot of writers on those two sites that I mentioned, and I would sometimes offer editorial suggestions. And they started sending me things and asking for my help on it. And so after a while, they started saying, you should charge for this. And I ended up 
I don't know, um, I can't remember, something like 200 novels that I worked on over four years. Uh, it was crazy. But boy, did I learn a lot. I learned a lot about what I did and did not like. I learned how to, um, you know, see things from different angles. But I also learned that I could not possibly write and edit at the same time. Because as soon as I started to write, it would come, the voice would be more of my client than of me. And so I had to get to a point in my writing that I was able to let the editing go. That was a hard part because I was, it was like jumping off into zero income to be able to do that. Um, I'm awfully glad that I did both though. That's fabulous. Are there some, I guess, naive kind of grade eight question. Are there some famous writers that you helped along the way that are now out there publishing books and doing wonderful things that you can think I of? Have, I have not heard of any, except there's a few that are with very small publishers and local ones. And so I'm, uh, I don't hear about them very often. Uh, lately, I am able to help other authors with their books that are with my publisher. If they're like, I'm working with one debut author now and helping her understand how to navigate this crazy world of, of publishing. And it's such a joy to be able to be helping somebody else with it. I've read that you are so giving and supporting and, you know, raising other authors up and, and that you have been so generous around the time and promotion that you've given other people that they in turn will also do that for you. And then the strength of the historical fiction community just grows. Am I, am I right when I say that? Definitely. Because when I started, I just assumed this was going to be a competition the whole way. You know, um, everybody wants to see their book on that shelf and I'm going to outdo everybody. But the fact is, you don't have to blow out someone else's candle to see yours burn. It just, it has to feel, it has to work together with other people. And I started having a really great time working with other authors uh, as soon as the pandemic started in March, 2020, because my book, The Forgotten Home Child came out that month and everything was locked down. I had to stand outside the, the bookstores and just stare at it and wish I could touch it right there in the on the bookshelves, but I couldn't get in the books or into the store. So um, I started trying to find different ways to promote the book and to find ways to, you know, attract readers to this new cover of mine, this new story. And I decided this is the the silver lining of the pandemic for me is that I am no longer afraid of a, of a camera because I never, ever would have voluntarily done that before. But I started doing interviews of other historical fiction authors, people that were having the same problem marketing um, one of my friends, Janet Skesley in charge, who did the Paris Library, she was supposed to come out, I remember, in July of that summer, and she had to wait until the following February because of that. And I thought, this is really hard on my friends. And so we started doing interviews, and they read a section of their books. And I do, I think I've got three dozen of them now. And they're over, I run them on my Facebook page and over on YouTube. And it's, uh, it's, great for them, like a little promotion. But for me, it's been such a thrill because I'm meeting authors that I just basically worship. And here I am making friends with them and getting personal emails from people I have looked up to for years is just such a thrill. And to know that it was me that did that. You know, I, I stepped out. And when you talk about Breaking Brave, I was 
that was scary for me to get out there and say, okay, I'm going to start interviewing authors. I don't even know who I am, but I'm going to start interviewing them. And that was a scary thing to do, but I'm so glad I did it. And I've made so many friends that way. It's been a lot of fun. I've, I think I've got three more to do this month too. So it's ongoing. You're so right. The community gets stronger as you prop each other up as opposed to feeling like, oh no, I have to, it has to be all about me and it can't be all about that author. In that also the, the whole historical fiction category rises up because it's like, well, if you like Genevieve's book about this, if you like Bluebird, then you might like that book. Everybody wins. And that's the greatest, greatest gift. It is. And then my readers understand me and they know what kind of person I am and that they can trust me. They can trust my recommendations. And when I bring someone on to introduce to them, they are there because I've been able to show them I want to give you something and I want to introduce you to somebody special. And it, it works for everyone. It's it's a very rewarding. It was a rewarding, terrifying, but rewarding step that I took there. And thank you for referencing Brave in there because COVID as a subject, the pandemic as a subject, it felt like there were very, there were two roads, at least initially people could take rocking a ball and say, I'll wait this out in it. It'll all come back or rocking a ball for a little period of time, but then get the courage, find the bravery to figure out that new path, that place where bookstores are closed. I have to do something. I want to keep on writing books, so I have to figure out what is the new opportunity. And the great gift that COVID has given us is you probably would still be afraid of a camera, maybe, and not be doing any of that if none of this pandemic had happened. Exactly. Zoom has been an amazing thing for me. It's changed yeah. everything. Good for you. Um, why are you particularly interested in 18th century Scotland, Genevieve? It kept coming up as... 18th century Scotland is something you're super interested in. Is that in your family? Why is why is that an interesting place for you? Well, I do I do have Scottish heritage, but it's not because of that. It's because of Outlander, and it had such a huge influence on me. Uh, the first book that I wrote was actually Scottish historical. It turned into a trilogy, but it was Scottish historical with some kind of magic in it, little psychic stuff going on in there, and uh, it was that. It, that was a lot of fun because the first book I'd ever written was published by um, Penguin in New York, and then they wanted two more. And it was like, I I never imagined this. The books are no longer in print, um, but I do hope that somewhere down the line, I will be able to re-release them. It's just that right now, my, my entire mm, focus is on Canadian history. So to introduce another time period, another country, wouldn't quite go with it, but... Um, yeah, that was a, that was an amazing thrill when I first started out. Penguin, New York. Like, yeah. Penguin, New York. Yeah, it was um, my agent went to the senior editor at the time and she bought it within 48 hours on the grounds that I had a second one ready to go. And so my agent called me and my husband picked me up off the floor and then my agent said, so she wants a second one. You have one ready, right? And I said, of course I have a second one. And I had no idea what I was going to write. And I panicked and I paced for paced for a couple of weeks. And then as it so often does, the story came to me about three o'clock in the morning and I jumped out of bed and started scribbling it. So, um, and then the third one came along. Um, 
they're very different from from what I write now and they you can get them used on Amazon or at, old, at used bookstores but um someday someday I will bring them out again I want to write a fourth to go with the three so Genevieve can we talk about your your process and I'm I'm jumping to that because of three o'clock in the morning and that whole subconscious thing that starts to run through your brain. But when you, uh, am I right when I say that you have committed to, or you actually are doing, planning on doing one book a year? Yes. And I have, I've, I started in, the first one came out in 2012 and this bluebird is my 10th. (laughs) So what's the process? How do you essentially sit down how do you decide start from zero to what it becomes um i think the process is constantly changing at least i i hope it is because i'm the least organized person in the world and um i start out with all good intentions i will go to the library and i'll take out all the nonfiction books on the subject um that i can find and the librarians always know what i'm going to write before anyone else does And then when I, but sometimes those books are a lot like what we heard in high school, right? Sometimes they're a little dry. And so when I run out of energy for that, I will go online and I'll start researching blog posts and going with people who specialize and, you know, they dig in specific parts of history. It's amazing. I was, I was speaking with a man who's, whose forte is flashlights over the ages and fascinating man it like he had this blog that was pages and pages of flashlights so there's um I I start looking that way and around the time that I'm doing this I'm gathering not just the basics not just the black and white picture but I'm gathering the little ones and that's what I call colorizing that black and white photo bringing it to life like some of those beautiful war photos you can see that bring them back um and once I've started to bring them to life that way then that's when I get to know the characters. And I have a vague idea, usually, of what I want the story to do. I know that I have promised myself and everyone that I will always have a love story, and I will always have um, at least a hopefully ever after, if not a happy ever after. It's I'm going to do as much as I can to avoid anybody walking away thinking, oh, I'm sorry I read that one. Um it's, it's important to me that they feel good. So I have a rough idea of what I want to do. I've got the research, which is constantly coming to me because I write at the same time as I research. So as I said, when I'm walking down the street with the character and she wants to know what's in the store window, that's part of the research that I have to incorporate into it. I also mentioned that I often fall down rabbit holes and I research probably more than I need to. And I end up writing all sorts of different branches off the story that don't belong at all. And my editor will say, this is all very interesting, but, and I have to go back and and do a lot of changes. So she and I are trying very hard to get me organized. And, uh, you know, she'll say, let's have a first draft where you actually know what what you're going to do. And we'll try to stick to that. It's, it's It's changing. But I think the next one, I've got a good grip on it now and I haven't really started it yet. So it's, it'll be exciting. We'll see if I can do it. <laughs> I love the fact that you talk about walking down the street with the characters and looking in the store windows. When I interviewed Marissa Stapley, she talked about being on a bus and that the character Lucky came and sat down beside her. And the first time I heard an author describe a character like that, I was like, ah, oh, a little awestruck. 
But I totally do now begin to understand how that happens. Yeah, and it's it's all. I mean, awestruck is one thing, but you can also think, "Wow, that's a little crazy." That's what I thought about it for the longest time. That how does that happen? But it it is a thing, and it's somebody. Uh, some authors I used to talk with, we would say, "It feels like we're a medium sometimes," and especially writing history. Maybe this happened before. You know, it feels so natural sometimes. It flows so easily that I think. Maybe it actually did happen, and I'm just catching it along the way. Um, and then you think, well, maybe that's crazier than the other thing. But it's uh, it feels that way. It feels very. Um, it's an energy that you feel when it's when it starts to flow like that. Nobody can interrupt me. I I don't hear anybody else. I don't see anything. I just feel these characters, and it's it's a, it's an amazing experience to do it that way. I love that. Let's talk about Bluebird. Because I want all of the listeners to Breaking Brave to understand how riveting this book is. So can you, in your own words, just give me some, what's the whole premise of Bluebird? So Bluebird starts in World War I. Um, the only job that a Canadian woman was allowed to do overseas was as a nursing sister. Um, and they would wear blue gowns with white aprons over it, um, as opposed to um, the English and the American nurses, they would wear gray and our women wore blue. And the women were there to um, comfort the men physically, but also emotionally because these men had been surviving hell somehow. And they would call these girls angels of mercy. But over time, those blue gowns started to uh, associate the men, you know, with that's, that's a that's the person who is going to help me get through this. And they started to call them bluebirds. And so that's where my Adele is. She's a bluebird. And uh, we meet her in a hospital clearance center in Belgium. And those clearance centers were sort of mobile hospitals. Not, not really easy to move, but little villages that they could move depending on how close they were to the front. Always sort of near a railway so they could take and, and send men who needed help. So when, uh, when we meet Adele in her in her hospital clearance center, she is, she's always meeting incoming men. And the one that she meets in this, in one of the opening scenes is Jerry, Jerry Bailey and his brother, John, and they are both tunnelers. Yet another part of history that I had never heard of before. These are the men that they fought underground. They would dig tunnels underneath enemy trenches and plant explosives in there. And sometimes the Germans would be doing the same thing. So sometimes their tunnels would collide and they would be fighting underground in the dark uh, in tunnels that were sometimes four feet high and three feet wide, like just madness what these what these men went through. Um, so I, I like to write about things that we have no idea about. So I made the brothers tunnelers and I made um, for the first part of the book, you can definitely see how Adele and Jerry are coming together and how they how they connect and how they need each other. But he has to go back to the front. So then I move ahead at the end of the war and they are both going home and they had they had spoken about it before, but they're both from the Windsor, Ontario area. So when they eventually remet, um, he had told her that he wanted to be an accountant. And so when she finally met him, she said, so are you an accountant now? And he said, well, in a matter of speaking, because he had become a bootlegger, rum runner, a, a businessman that way. And he, he did do the books. So I guess he was an accountant in a way. But um, their story goes through um, 
his journey and hers alongside um, amongst the gangsters and the fast-paced life of Prohibition. Um, and there's a mystery in it as well. Um, but, and then it got even more fun because just as I was starting to write it, I came up, I came up with a New York Times article and it was about uh, a man who had, he and his partner had bought a house in New York State that was um, built by a rum runner back in the day. And uh, they love to rebuild houses. So that's the one they got when they were working on the outside renovations. There was some rotten wood skirting along the outside. So they started to take it off and they uncovered all these old whiskey bottles that were all wrapped up. And I thought, well, there's there's the clue that I should be writing about present tense as well as past. And I was able to bring them all together um, in sort of a family mystery that that winds through. I'm... Uh, I'm fairly new at writing mystery type things. So it was, that was exciting for me to try and find some, a new way to approach the story and wind the past and the present together. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the basics of Bluebird. And I, I can tell you that I did imagine um, Jerry and Adele as Tommy Shelby and Grace. So if you're reading the book, you can imagine those faces on those people and might help put a little zing into it. I guess, too, perhaps for me personally, Genevieve, that we five years ago bought a house in Canada in Coburg that is very historical. It was built in 1871 and we're slowly trying to fix it up. And every time we get into a wall or replace a historical baseboard, I'm always looking for some kind of a clue. So that idea of finding this treasure behind the wall and 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 that being the basis of how it all unfolds, brilliant, beautiful. I still, I'm getting shivers even just talking about it. It was really neat too, because these guys did find some more underneath their floor in the main area. Um, they were peeling up some boards and they were they found more and they decided to cover it up with glass or plexiglass or whatever so that it just adds to the flavor of the house. It's, you can see it there. I just loved hearing that. I've heard stories about the house, some of the historical homes in Coburg where I live that people have found old mason jars with $20,000 or something in it. And I'm like, we got nothing so far, but I'll keep, <laughs> I will keep you posted for sure. So it's April 5th that the world can get their hands on Bluebird. Yes. Okay. Yes. And hopefully every bookstore will be open. Um, hopefully you can rush all in there because my, my last year's book, Letters Across the Sea, came out one week before lockdown as well. So I don't know, maybe it's all my fault that I'm getting these lockdowns from ER, but it's not happening no. again. <laughs> no. And I think there's something very special after we've all been on screen and connected via every electronic possible that we can now finally get our hands on a book. I, I'd like yes. to believe that COVID has perhaps reinvigorated the need and the desire for the tactile experience with a book. I think so. I think people really... Um they really bought a lot of books in those past two years. I know that bookstores were afraid and especially independent bookstores. It's very hard for independent bookstores to, to make, make lives, you know, to make everything work out that way. But, um, there was an interesting story behind the independent bookstores during the beginning of COVID because all the authors and all the publishers got right behind them. And, you know, we knew, 
nobody's going to touch Amazon. And Chapters and Barnes & Noble, they're going to be okay. But these independent booksellers are struggling. And so we all got behind them and we promoted them on social media and we ran promotions with them to try and get people steered to them. And I remember speaking with one of the store owners at the end and she was saying, you know, I've never been so busy. And it just shows how we all pulled together and helped. Isn't that fabulous? Thank you for sharing that because I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I worry too, the same as you, that Amazon makes life just way too easy. That yes. there's there's you know, there's a laziness that comes with would just go to Amazon. But the heart of our country is these small independent businesses. So so good for you. And I'm thrilled to hear that it worked. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't know what you can say or what you can't say, but What's next after Bluebird? Oh, okay. Well, it, and it'll be out next spring. They're always out in the spring, as long okay. as I can keep to my schedule. Um, I'm going back to World War II for this one. And I discovered some different things that Canadian women did during World War II that they were sworn to secrecy for 40 years after. Um, and so most of these people never spoke about what they did during the war And their children didn't know until accidentally they discovered it. But um, I'm writing about two sisters and one of them is going to join what's called the listeners. And that was, um, they would, it was like Bletchley Park um, in a way, like they would send the things that they heard over the wireless telegraphs and all those machines. They would be listening in for the enemy and they'd be able to send that information to Bletchley Park to eventually work towards ending the war. So the code breakers, the listeners, a huge part of it. And we had bases here um, in uh, New Brunswick and all over the place, actually, listeners. And the other one that I'm having fun with, I'm actually going to put a bunch of different things in this one, of course, because I just can't stop. But um, the other one that I thought was really fun is... There is a uh, there was an organization called the Air Air Transport Authority, and basically during World War II, they were responsible for flying in replacement planes if a plane was damaged or downed, and they would need to bring in you know replacements for them. And a lot of them were flown in by um, retired like World War One p- uh, pilots that were no longer going to fight, but they could help this way. But they couldn't find enough of them. And they started to bring in women, which was quite a, they couldn't, it was a hard thing for some of those guys to allow the the women not only into their business, but to be heroes along the way. And so my other sister is going to be one of them. And so it's it's really fun. Air Transport Authority, ATA. So they used to call them Atta Girls. And so there's my Atta Girl right there. So um, there's a, and she, she wasn't sworn to secrecy, but she did, fly without maps and um like she was nobody knew where she was either and so there's a lot of secrecy and there's a couple other things I'm going to throw in that are all all about you have to keep these secrets on pain of death and uh so it's 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 fun to learn things there's a I'm going to talk a little bit about Camp X which is the spy school in Toronto and uh it's uh, Ian Fleming was there. They say a lot of his 007 stuff came from right there. I, I understand it's near Casaloma. So um, Camp X is a fantastic thing to study. And another thing that I had never, ever heard of. It's. I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be a very uh, fast-paced adventure. I'm happy with how it's going. So hopefully you will too. And just by what you've told us so far, 
I can't wait. How do you come up with a title? And I'm not going to ask for it because maybe your 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 publishers, etc., are not. We aren't allowed to know that yet. If we are, great. If we're not, I'll shut up. But how do you develop the the title for it? Is that does that come from you? Does that come from someone else? It really depends on on the title. Um, Bluebird is mine. And I really wanted Bluebird from the beginning. And my my publishers were like, oh, we think it should be a longer title and maybe the flying Bluebird. So like, you know, whatever, they were playing with different ideas. And I said, I just want Bluebird. And after they read it, they, were, they thought, oh, that really is, it's perfect. And, and then they put that beautiful blue cover on it and it couldn't be any better. Um, the one before that, Letters Across the Sea, uh, it was a totally different title when I was working with it. And then we developed it more and more and we realized it needed to be shaped to give a better representation of, you know, the point of the story. And the next one is um, right now I'm calling it the secret keepers. And it's uh, my, my editor really likes that. So I think we might be staying with it. There's also um, tricks that I don't really understand that the, the stories you have to um, the titles you have to use have to be basically about history. Um, they can't just be, you know, um, flying flying angels, something like that. You know, you can't do that because that could be any kind of genre. And so um, with historical, you have to put that the right flavor into the title as well. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. I had no idea when I saw the title, but that's great that you're kind of kept to it has to make sense to the historical piece of what you're writing about. Yeah, it worked very well for Bluebird because she was my main focus through the through the whole beginning of my writing until Jerry appeared. Adele was my focus and it was it was just right for her. So, Genevieve, how can people support you, connect with you? How can they get their hands on a copy of Bluebird on April the 5th when it comes out? And how can they reach you, support you, be part of your life, because I know they're going to want to be after listening to this episode. Oh, that's so nice. My books are all on my website, which is GenevieveGraham.com. And uh, and if you have trouble spelling Genevieve, my little sister years ago called it Genevieve. So GenevieveGraham.com. Um, <laughs> and I have all my books on there. And they are, um, I link them to Simon & Schuster's website so that you have your choice on how you want to buy them, where you want to go to buy them. Um, you know, if you are an Amazon shopper or if you are supporting independent, you can choose. Um, all my social media is under Jen Graham author. So I am on Facebook and I am on Instagram and Twitter once in a while, but I really enjoy Instagram. And on, on Facebook, I have a, a group that have been with me for so long there. We've all become a really close friendship. Um, my readers and I, we chat all the time and, uh, I, I do things once in a while, I'll send out signed book plate stickers that they can put into their books because I can't be there to sign them. So I'm constantly trying to find ways to, to touch. And, um, I send out a, an e-newsletter once in a while, but I'm not very good at that because it takes coordination. Um, but the, the Facebook is very active um, under Jen Graham author. Great. And that brought me back to a question which I didn't remember to ask you a minute ago, which was the, the cover. I talked to Dr. Daniel Kala about who does the art, and then you have something fabulous that I saw that's a cover reveal, like an event where people get to 
be part of what's the cover going to look like? So who does the art? And then what's the story behind the cover reveal promotion? Well, the publisher does the art. They they usually have an in-house artist or they or they have freelancers that they work with. Um, they, uh, they have their own ideas. And usually if you don't have, like if you're new to the business or you have, don't have a lot of titles out, you have very little say on what your cover is going to be. And I think that's important because a lot of people still, of course, they still judge a book by its cover. But um, it's important to know that the author does not make those covers because if they don't, sometimes they don't represent. My books are beautifully done, my covers. Um, every one of them, I'm just thrilled with. They, they represented the book so beautifully. Um, but they are they are mostly created by the publisher. And I get a little bit of say, like um, with uh, with uh, Bluebird, they had a, it's very cool actually with historical fiction books, with the covers, what they're doing. Uh, they like to very much, especially in the US, they like to have historical fiction books where you have the perspective from behind the woman and you're looking straight ahead where she was. And so you almost know that you're going to be reading historical fiction just from seeing from behind a woman. And then the new thing that I learned this year was if uh, if they have an airplane, if there's a war going on, they will put an airplane in there. And if it's a biplane, that means you're World War One. And if it's a regular plane, you're in World War Two. So I thought that was cool. And so that was happening with Bluebird. They had a, a biplane in there. And I said, but it's about bootlegging. Can we put a little Model T Ford in there? So they did. And so yeah, I can, I, I'm very fortunate that I've got such an incredible team at Simon & Schuster and they let me be a part once in a while of of helping out with all those ideas what about um the cover reveal like is that's a thing that 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 you do or do lots of authors do that do that I think that's a fairly new thing and I know um I know a lot of of authors that do it now because they it's all about promotion and um involving the reviewers and the bookstagrammers and all those people that are behind promoting our books um to get them excited. And when I have a, a cover that I love this much, I want to give them a peek. And that's going to hopefully make them excited enough that they're going to go pre-order a copy, you know, and uh, and and be able to talk about it, maybe share it on their social media and get the readers interested in it. So um, I don't think it's something that's absolutely necessary, but it, it really helps, I think, for awareness. And you will know when you walk into a, a bookstore in April that's the cover because I've seen it so many times and you will be drawn to it. So it's, it's all promotion, all marketing, but it's, uh, it's fun to do it. And, um, usually when, when I do it, I reach out to some of the, the reviewers that have really been helpful to me in the past. And it's almost like, you know, uh, would you like to join me? And would you like to be a part of this? And it turns into a fun event for all of us and other authors do it too. I've, I've helped promote other authors covers when they come out as well. Um, keeps everything interesting and it it keeps all of our books top of mind what they look like. I'm glad I asked about book covers because yes. there's a whole beautiful rabbit hole that we just went down on that. Yes. And now I have to run to the local bookstore <laughs> and buy them all. Well, I can guarantee you that you will learn. You will learn something and you will have a whole new appreciation for this country and and how we came to be who we are. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you for this interview. And thank you for continuing to channel the beautiful history of Canada 
I hope you can come back and talk when the next one's a little bit more crystallized and ready to come out next spring. I would love to share with you, Marilyn. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege to speak with you today. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.